What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the planet today. It is Friday, October 7th, 2022. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here with producer and co-host Nick Janusa. Nick, how's it going? Matty, it's going pretty well over here. What a wonderful day to have a pod. We're in the 70s and it is October. We're blessed and we're also screwed. No, I mean, one one random 70 degree day. I'm not going to, well, I guess two yesterday was nice as well. But anyway, like two random 70 degree days in the fall. I'll take it. I'm not worried. <laughs> uh, if this becomes a pattern where we have 70s for like three weeks. Yeah. And we're talking about something different and probably we're covering it on the podcast, but this is just beautiful weather. I'm soaking it in, baby. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is an absolute treat. This is like that one last hurrah of like summer is not over. I will not give up on it. And then like probably by next week, we'll be in like fifties and sixties and stuff and be like, oh, this is terrible. Or even forties. Which is where I peak and just wear the same flannel shirt four days in a row because <laughs> I don't go outside ever. <laughs> yeah, no sweating. So you can just wear the same shirt over and over <laughs> and over again. That's what you got to do. You have like that one, oh, I just got home. Let me put on my favorite shirt. Shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm developing those pants too. I, I have like a whole like combo. I'm like, all right, I'm getting cozy. Let's go. Pants, shirt. Let's roll. Hey, it's important. And uh, you know what? Let's roll into this podcast. Today, we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy with two episodes every week coming your way Monday and Friday. Time for our quick hits of the week. And the first one is by CNN's Rachel Ramirez, who writes, This 100% solar community endured Hurricane Ian with no loss of power and minimal damage. So just like last week where we covered Hurricane Fiona, we're going to start off with uh, the bad news related to this and then get into some glimmers of optimism and a, a good story that, that kind of came out of this. So starting off with the bad, the death toll for Hurricane Ian has surpassed 100 people at the time of recording, a number that authorities expect to rise. The Category 4 storm swept through Cuba and Florida last week and then actually made a second landfall in South Carolina. More than 1,900 people have been rescued throughout Florida as of Monday night of this week. On Wednesday, President Biden met with Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis to see the damage caused by one of the most powerful storms to hit the U.S. in recent years. Some early estimates say that $55 billion in damage has been caused in Florida alone, but some insurance companies have said that number could be far higher. As of Tuesday, over 430,000 homes and businesses were still without power in Florida. Some good news that came out of Florida was at Babcock Ranch, which is 12 miles south of Fort Myers, and it's a 2,000-home neighborhood where 700,000 solar panels generate more electricity than the neighborhood actually uses. It was very carefully planned. The streets are actually designed to flood during storms. That way, homes don't. The neighborhood has native landscaping on the roads to control stormwater, underground power and internet lines to avoid any sort of wind damage, and some homes even have additional solar panels on their roof with a battery backup. That way, if there's an outage, they have even more protection against that. 
Fort Myers saw over 100 mile an hour winds, record breaking storm surge, and millions of customers losing power. The power at Babcock Ranch stayed on. Trees were uprooted and some houses have damage to their roof, but the majority of the neighborhood remained mostly unharmed. Their water, electricity, and internet all stayed on through a Category 4 hurricane. The neighborhood was envisioned by Sid Kitson, who wanted it to be an eco-conscious and innovative neighborhood that is safe and resilient from megastorms. Kitson also played for the Green Bay Packers between 1981 to 1984, so go Pack Go. (laughs) Construction began in the neighborhood in 2015, and the first residents moved there in 2018. As more people have moved in, more solar panels have been added to the solar array. The author writes, as utilities scramble to restore power across the state, Babcock residents say September storms showed that America's energy infrastructure is not well equipped to handle worsening extreme weather events. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, we've seen many power outages for different types of storms. You know, we had the whole thing in in Texas last year where I forget how much of the state lost power, but, you know, you have like record flooding in a state that's leading to people losing power. You have a Category 4 hurricane that's leading to people losing power. And here's an example of how we can plan a better future that relies on renewable energy and a smaller grid to basically just not have to deal with those problems. It's it's different than saying it's easier to solve them if you don't have to deal with them at all. And this is one of those situations, just like the two prototype homes in Puerto Rico that we talked about last week, where yeah. the sun is still going to shine. You're still going to generate energy, even if it's raining, even if it's cloudy, you're going to get less solar energy, but you're going to get energy. And in this case where you have some homes with battery backups, like this neighborhood has proven to be a safe haven through a devastating, deadly storm. And I I don't know, it's hard to look at something like this and not feel like solar is just a far better option than our traditional energy systems. Yeah, absolutely. And like, this is a model neighborhood. You know, this is like, this could be the future. This is this is hopefully the future. And I was watching the Weather Channel while Ian was hitting, and there was a meteorologist down in Jacksonville who was literally, it was like right after the storm had hit, I think, mm-hmm. and he was right up against this barrier that they had built in Jacksonville where it's supposed to like block the water from getting into the city. Okay. So he, he's standing there, and he's like... Yeah, so the barrier's about right here. Okay, so this is an audio podcast. People can't see what I'm doing with my hands. But anyway, it was about <laughs> up to his head or, or like his neck. And the the barrier was blocking just enough. The water was right up to that barrier level. When we're talking about 27 feet of possible sea level rise, we are not fit. Mm-hmm. To, to live the way that we are living right now, especially if we get more extreme weather events like this in the future. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And we're supposed to. Like, this is this is part of the climate modeling is going to say that we're going to get more stronger storms. Yeah. So to have something like this, that's this, you know, blueprint for resilience and, and blueprint for how do we build a community that won't be as impacted by something that we're probably going to see a lot more of this is something that makes me feel really hopeful about the future. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, the next one is titled New York to Ban New Gas-Powered Vehicles Following California's Lead by Gizmodo's Lauren Leffer. 
So we covered California's decision to ban gas-powered cars by 2035 back on September 2nd. If you want to listen to that episode and check out what we had to say about it then, uh, one of the things I believe we mentioned was California is often the leader in things like this. And we were curious what states were going to follow suit. Well, New York announced a very similar measure last week. By 2035, New York will entirely ban the purchase of new petroleum-powered cars in the state. Governor Kathy Hochul says that this will benefit our climate and the health of New York's communities for generations to come. This is part of a greater statewide goal for New York to reduce emissions by 85% by 2050 compared to 1990 levels. 28% of New York's total greenhouse gas emissions come from the transportation sector which creates almost 107 million metric tons of CO2 and other gases per year. The goal is for the EV transition to reduce those emissions, as the power grid shifts away from fossil fuels as well. Much like California's law, this law in New York will go into effect in different phases. So by 2026, 35% of all light-duty vehicles will be electric. By 2030, that number is going to be 68%. And by 2035, every new car sold in the state will be electric. This also includes new pollution standards for gas-powered vehicles manufactured between 2026 and 2034 so that the cars that will still be running on gas will be cleaner than those that we see on the road today. New York also has policies for an all-electric school bus fleet across the state by 2035 and additional financial support from municipalities and individuals looking to buy electric vehicles. The state's Drive Clean rebate program offers incentives up to $2,000 to help people buy EVs. And that's in addition to the federal rebate of $7,500. Kathy Hochul acknowledged the upfront cost of an electric vehicle is higher than that of a traditional car, but that cost is dropping. And they're also cheaper to maintain than gas-powered cars. Switching from gas-powered vehicles to EVs could also have a tremendous impact on public health. Air pollution leads to increased respiratory illnesses, degenerative eye diseases, and can be deadly. And in New York, car exhaust is one of the largest contributors. So look, I mean, this is great news. And another thing that I just thought of while we were talking about that is this is going to have a really big impact on noise pollution. And as somebody Mm. who lives in New York, in the city to be specific, this is going to have a great impact because I don't know how many of the listeners visited New York City while everything was kind of shut down during 2020, but it was so much quieter. And (laughs) people always say like, oh, New York is so loud. It's because there's a lot of cars. Like cars are loud and you hear the honking, you hear (laughs) just cars whizzing by. Like the buildings aren't making a ton of noise. So, (laughs) you know, like to take noisy gas powered cars off the road. And if you've ever experienced an electric vehicle, they're quiet. Yeah. So along with reducing our emissions, along with increasing our air quality, this is also going to have a big impact on noise pollution. So look, all around, I think this is going to be great for the city, great for the state. And I'm just very happy to hear this news as a New Yorker. Yeah, this this is fantastic news for the health of people, for the earth as a whole, and just for New York. Yeah, happy, happy to hear this and definitely a, a good, good story for us here on this Friday. Yeah. All right. Our next Story for you is from The Guardian, and it's just as good, where Lois Beckett writes, L.A. restricts water flow to wasteful celebrity mansions. No matter how rich, we'll treat you the same. Yeah, so quick story here, and one that I hope works as well as it's expected to. 
Los Angeles is still living through a historic mega drought, and residents have been asked to consume less water to conserve what is actually available. In spite of this, some of the rich and famous have still been watering their vast, expensive lawns and their gardens, so local authorities have turned to flow restrictors. Flow restrictors are these little devices that are installed in the pipes of water wasters, and they reduce the flow to a specific home. They only take about 10 minutes to install and have already been used for Kevin Hart, rapper The Game, and Scott Disick, with more potentially on the way. And I'm going to fact check The Guardian real quick here. Uh, they said rapper The Game, but he changed his stage name to just Game a couple years ago. <laughs> so the, the article calls this an experiment in holding the super rich accountable. Mike McNutt of the Las Virginis Water District said, We have taken a very firm position on being equal. It doesn't matter who you are, how much money you make, how well known you are. All of you are being treated the same. Some districts, including Las Virginis, have mandated a 50% reduction in outdoor watering. And the hope is that flow restrictors will cause people who weren't already listening to follow this mandate. The flow restrictors basically make it so that sinks and toilets are going to work fine. You know, you don't have to worry about people's drinking water getting cut off here. You just have to be more conscious about everything else. And they mentioned how it's tough to do two things at the same time. So if you're showering, your toilet's probably not going to flush in the meantime. So it's just more about conservation of water than it is about saying like, hey, you're not going to be able to use water to boil your rice or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A residence becomes eligible for having a flow restrictor installed by exceeding the water level at least four times since December 2021. Before their water usage is restricted, customers have multiple opportunities to speak with water district officials and change their habits. 1,600 people have done this already, but only six or seven dozen flow restrictors have been installed to date. Yeah, and that's the kind of stat that makes me not feel bad for when people have this happen. Like They mentioned that you have the opportunity to come talk and say, what's going on and have them tell you like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta cut back on the water usage. If you're not going to do that, if you're going to ignore the notices and then these flow restrictors get installed, like it, it's on you. It's, it's, it's not like they're not warning people. Yeah. And also if they've only gotten, let's shoot high and say seven dozen. So that's 84 people out of 1,600 people who have done this. It's not like they're doing this to everybody. I'm, I'm hopeful that the people who are wasting water do start to see that, all right, like 84 people have had this happen to them. I don't want to be next. Let me cut back before the flow restrictor is put into place. So whether it works because the flow restrictor does its job or it works because people are just like, oh, I don't want that to happen. I'm going to cut back. Either way, it reduces water usage in a state and a city specifically that is going through a mega drought. Yeah, absolutely. This is all about reducing water usage. Um, and I just wanted to say really quick, I used to work actually in Las Virginis, um, actually at the Las Virginis school district. And it's an extremely rich area. If you don't know, it's right near Calabasas, um, in between thousand Oaks. And there are many houses that are just like multi, multi-million dollar houses. Even like the, even like the suburbs mm -hmm. around it are still like million dollar houses, at least $1 million houses. So this is an extremely rich area with um, a lot of famous people, actors, whatever. And it's super important to keep them just as accountable as Joe Schmo down the street. You know, like we need to keep everyone on the same page. And I like this guy, Mike McNutt's positioning. Yeah. He's just like, you know what? I don't care who you are. 
you're going to be treated the same way. No one can use this much water. Yeah, and that's that's the way it's got to be. I mean, we've always seen throughout history here internationally, like people with power tend to get off a little bit easier. People with money tend mm-hmm. to get off a little easier. And in this case, Mike McNutt is saying, no, <laughs> if I if I need to restrict <laughs> my water, if, if there's this random person down the street needs to restrict their water, then you, Kevin Hart, need to restrict the water usage on your on your lawn. Yeah, and it's not like these guys are like, or guys and gals are using like water to to water like their luscious gardens of like feeding their family with their gardens. Like there's no way these people are doing that. I'm sorry, there's no chance. They're not feeding like more than two people with their gardens. Yeah, and I mean the gardens are probably just like, I, I don't think when they said gardens, they meant like vegetable gardens. I think they mean like- Just flowers. You walk into this like beautiful flower garden. Yeah. None of them are native plants. Like the most expensive stuff you can think <laughs> of is all there. And it's like, yeah. what what is this doing in a, in a drought right yeah. now? <laughs> yeah, so good story. And uh, with that, we're gonna take a quick break. Got two more quick hits on the way back. Planet Today is brought to you by Vala Alta. Vala Alta's Everyday Handkerchief is a high-performance daily-use handkerchief designed to help minimize your impact. Made in the United States from sustainably sourced Irish linen, capturing the material's historic craftsmanship and natural antimicrobial properties, handkerchiefs perfectly balance softness with durability and absorbency with rapid drying. Ideal for functional use in all settings, from the outdoors to routine encounters, their small and lightweight design makes one a must-carry for wherever life takes you. Build your own bundles from limited edition colors at valalta.co and save 15% with code TPT at checkout. That's V-A-L-A-A-L-T-A dot co and code TPT. To the planet today, folks. Next up, Boston bans artificial turf in parks due to toxic forever chemicals by Tom Perkins of The Guardian. Yeah, so just a heads up here in advance. This is a good story for Boston. The rest of this is going to be a little unsettling for people. So we've spoken about PFAS on here before. Um, They're often referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down naturally. PFAS stands for per and polyfluoral alkyl substances, which are a class of about 12,000 chemicals used to make products resist water, staining, and heat. PFAS are linked to cancer, liver problems, thyroid issues, birth defects, kidney disease, decreased immunity, and other serious health problems. Yeah, all, all that good stuff, all from some chemicals. <laughs> I felt like I was just doing like a like a medical product. The like side effects commercial. at the end of every commercial. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, try Lipitor. You might die, but it's worth it. <laughs> so these these forever chemicals can be absorbed through the skin, inhaled, ingested, or get into open wounds as they break off from the plastic grass blades that are found in art- artificial turf, which, yeah, that has me feeling pretty good about the turf burns that I've gotten through sports throughout the <laughs> years. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, all those little, like, black things that used to get in my shoes and like yeah, the beads, the beads. Yeah. They used to just get in like all over myself. How many times I was just like in the turf, just laying down. We're screwed. 
Yeah, this stuff's not good. So all of the issues that Nick and I had mentioned uh, led to Boston's mayor, Michelle Wu, ordering that no new artificial turf will be installed in city parks because all artificial turf is made with PFAS compounds. Boston is the largest municipality to limit the use of artificial turf because it contains these dangerous forever chemicals. Some turf is also still made with ground up tires that can contain heavy metals, benzene, volatile organic compounds, and other cancer-causing components. Turf emits a high level of methane and sheds microplastics and other chemicals into waterways. Sarah Evans of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai is quoted as saying, we already know there are toxic chemicals in the products, so why would we continue to utilize them and have children roll around on them when we have a safe alternative, which is natural grass? Turf can also act as a heat island, which can cause field temperatures to reach up to 200 degrees Fahrenheit in some regions. And look, anyone who's ever played on turf knows how much hotter it feels on turf compared to the track around it, the grass field next to it. Like turf gets hot. And some players in the NFL have been pressuring the league to ban artificial turf while the U.S. national soccer team only plays on grass. And both of those do that because of the increased risk of injury while playing on turf. I know that with the push for the NFL to ban turf fields, it's because both contact and non-contact injuries see increases on turf compared to grass fields. Uh, Concussions are also more likely to occur on turf fields than on grass, which I'm going to guess has something to do with the speed of play when playing on turf. But yeah, turf has like this whole slew of problems that grass works great. People get injured less. You know, it's it's better. Yeah, definitely. Artificial turf is made with several layers, including plastic grass blades, plastic backing that holds the blades in place, and infill that weighs down the turf and helps the blades stand upright. Infill has traditionally been made with recycled rubber tires called crumb rubber. The EPA and independent testing found that turf contains high levels of dangerous chemicals. Some industries have begun using cork as infill. But the artificial grass blades cannot be made without PFAS. I also read a study in college about how in college soccer, I forget if it was D1 or D3 where the study was conducted, goalkeepers who play on turf are more likely to get diagnosed with cancer, which many researchers believed is because they spend more time on the ground than other positions in soccer. So the more contact you have with turf over and over and over again, and if you're playing college soccer, the odds of, you know, you playing for a couple of years is low. You probably played most of your life if you're good enough to, to play in college, Yeah, especially as a goalie. So, you know, to, to have years and years of using turf fields compound into a higher risk of cancer. I mean, turf seems to me, it, it's got more cons than pros. The pros are that it's easier to maintain. You don't have to worry about watering it. You don't have to worry about mowing it. Mm -hmm. The cons are it's hot, it's polluting, it's got chemicals, it's causing cancer, it's like it's causing more injuries in sports. There's this whole laundry list of things that go wrong when you use turf too much. Yeah, this is something that was definitely not on anyone's radar. You know, like I don't think any of us growing up were like, oh, playing on this turf, I might have cancer one day because of this turf. It's just like not even something that crosses your mind when you're playing. And when we have something like Sarah Evans said, that is a safe alternative, 
why even bother? Like, yeah, it's less maintenance. You have to pay. You don't have to pay the guy to, to maintain the, the turf. Okay. Mm-hmm. Big whoop. Spend the extra money. It's not worth having your kids who are going to be playing on these fields consistently, especially in a sport where you're on the ground a lot like football. It's worth the extra investment and just getting grass. Especially, you know, not to turn this into a, a whole political thing, but like especially in a country where healthcare is really expensive. Yeah. You know, like what's what's going to cost more in the long run, cancer treatment or paying someone to maintain a grass field at your high school? Absolutely. Yeah. So good on good on Michelle Wu and good, good on the city of Boston for uh, banning artificial turf in new parks. I'm, I'm really happy to hear about this. And just one final note before we move on. Children are considered more vulnerable to the issues from PFAS because their bodies are still developing. So if the most vulnerable population, children, is the most likely to be playing on turf consistently, that's a problem. So I'm I'm glad to hear that Boston is banning this and and I hope to see that more cities follow suit. Yeah, agreed. Something that just needs to get on everyone's radar. All right. Our last quick hit of the week is from the New York Times where Jack Nikos writes... Bolsonaro and Lula will go to a runoff to decide the leader of Latin America's largest democracy. Polling had predicted that Jair Bolsonaro would be ousted as Brazil's president, mostly, this is my opinion, but because he sucks. (laughs) He ran a similar play to what our American audience might be familiar with by saying the only way he would be defeated is if the election is rigged. Bolsonaro outperformed polling on Sunday of this week, forcing a runoff on October 30th to determine whether Brazil will have a new president or not. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, a former leftist president, received just under 48% of the vote, with Bolsonaro receiving just under 44%. Lula needed 50% to win the election in round one, so that's why Brazil is heading to a runoff. Pollsters apparently misjudged conservative candidates across Brazil as governors and lawmakers that support Bolsonaro won many of their races. The two men have very different views on the future of Brazil, which currently faces environmental threats, rising hunger, a slow economy, and a deeply polarized people. Brazil's left views Bolsonaro as a dangerous threat to the nation's democracy and its standing on the world stage. Brazil's conservatives see Lula as an ex-convict who was a central part of a vast corruption scheme that helped rot Brazil's institutions. So throughout October, Bolsonaro will have to play catch up on Lula, who was still the leading vote getter on Sunday. Uh, Bolsonaro is trying to avoid becoming the first incumbent to lose his re-election bid since the start of Brazil's modern democracy in 1988. Lula was convicted of corruption charges after he left office and has spent 580 days in prison. But last year, the Supreme Court said his case was biased and threw out all of his charges. So voters have kind of rallied behind him. On the environmental side, Lula has signaled that he will crack down on environmental crimes by militias, land grabbers, loggers and others in the Amazon, which is why this election is so important. Yeah. So, you know, the the Amazon is, is often nicknamed the lungs of the earth. And you have currently Jair Bolsonaro as president, who's an anti-environment threat to our planet. Under him, deforestation has risen to new highs, which is a major problem because 60% of the Amazon is in Brazil. Carbon Brief estimated that deforestation in the Amazon could fall by 89% if Bolsonaro is ousted as president. So obviously I'm rooting for Lula. We're not going to dive into this 
extremely deep right now because on October 30th, when we find out what happens, you bet the first episode in November, we're going to cover this because I'm going to be completely honest. I looked at our demographic. We have no listeners in Brazil, which makes sense because Nick and I are speaking English, not Portuguese. So it's not like, you know, our, our international poll in non-English speaking countries is as good as it maybe will be one day. But in any event, this is something that maybe doesn't sound as important to our American audience, our European audience, but this has tremendous, tremendous impact for the entire world. Yeah, this is one of those things you just, you need to get in order to reach some of the goals that we have as just like a global nation. And yeah, well, obviously we're going to cover this and, and make sure that we uh, review the results and, and talk about it on the show. Yeah, absolutely. So Lula, we're rooting for you. And uh, let's hope that Brazil can have a government that'll be more similar to Colombia, which I think we covered two months ago. They said that their goal is to ban deforestation in the Amazon. That's only 10% of the Amazon. So if we can get 60% of the Amazon in Brazil to be protected, this is a huge, huge accomplishment for the global ecosystem. Yeah, agreed. All right, that'll do it for today's episode of TPT. On Monday, we're going to be back with a feature story about big oil. We're going to get into big oil's role in climate change, how long the industry knew about it, and the global cost created by the industry, and more. Until then, please go give the show a five-star rating and a review wherever you can. Follow our socials at Planet Today Pod. Send us an email at planettodaypod at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at Matt Norton. Nick Janusa produces our show and makes all of the music we hear throughout. Nick, where can people keep up with you? You can hear more from me at soundcloud.com slash Cape, and that is B-U-D-L-Y-N-C-A-P-E. Go check me out, y'all. Our logo was made by Kaylee Vietz. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we will catch you right here on Monday. Peace!